So, how do you feel? Well, how would you feel if I told you that I think a hot dog is a sandwich? Um, I would think you're an idiot. <laughs> you are listening to Quant Talk, a podcast dedicated to interesting topics in quantitative finance and some uninteresting topics in other things. This podcast is run by Quantopia, a Boston-based company that inspires smart people everywhere to write investment algorithms. Select authors on Quantopian can license their algorithms to us and get paid based on that algorithm's performance. If you are interested in listening to more of our podcasts or watching our other content as it comes out, you can follow us on basically all social media. We are at Quantopian on most sites in order to be notified as we release content. Hi, I'm Max Marginat, the host of Quant Talk. Last week's episode was hosted by Delaney McKenzie while I was on vacation. I think he said it was unfortunate that I was on vacation, but he was wrong. It was a great time. But I'm back now, and today on Quant Talk, I sit down with Gus Gordon to talk about uh, risk, to talk about research, to talk about planes, and also sandwiches. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Max. I'm your host at Quant Talk, and I am here with Gus Gordon, who's a research engineer at Quantopian. How's it going? Pretty well, Gus. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out in this, uh, in our stunningly set up recording studio. It's, yeah, it's really exquisite. It's beautiful. Uh, I hope you like the ornamentation. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess we can just get right into it, right? So I, w- I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit of your background, and why you're in quant finance specifically, what you find interesting. Yeah, Whatever. sure. So I've always been like interested in computers my whole life. Like, I think when I was younger, I like got into like modding the software on your iPhone, or uh, not iPhone at that point, I guess iPod. Like iPod video. Okay, got it. And, uh, yeah, so I just kind of got interested through that and then, like, kept, like, looking more into software and eventually got into, like, PHP and then eventually Python. Fell way Um, deep into it. Yeah, just fell further and further down the rabbit hole. That's fine. You just keep digging. (laughs) Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I like computers. I didn't... I didn't major in computer science or anything in college. Mm-hmm. I majored in physics and economics. Uh, All right, well, that, that, that seems yeah. like it's enough yeah, in common right, that you right. get drawn into it, right? Yeah, and I, yeah, so so I, I'm just sort of interested in the you know quantitative aspects of life, I guess. All right, that's cool. Any particular aspects of life uh, that you're interested in quantifying, or is it just in general? I exploring. Yeah. Nothing off the top of my head I can think of now. Uh, I really like physics because I just like, you know, studying like the fundamental nature of the universe. I really like the, like, um, the first principles approach to problems. Okay. Which is like, I think, I think why physics is really good major for people because you kind of learn how to solve problems and you learn like fundamental truths. Mm-hmm. Um, that can help you decide like what is and what isn't possible in a lot of different aspects of like life. Can you break down this first principles approach at all for me? Yeah. So, um, so in physics, there's like all these laws. Like, mm-hmm. for example, a lot of people know about Newton's laws. Yeah. Like one of them is just like, it's just like F equals M A. So, for like, in order to have an object accelerate, you need to put a force on it. So, you know, for, just from that truth, you can basically like reason out that 
if, if you want to blast a rocket into space, you somehow have to put force on the rocket. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you, you know, try to make a rocket with some type of engine that's like not putting a force, and you're like, oh, I think this can get to space. Like, okay, well, you can very quickly reason out that that's not the case. And that's kind of a stupid example, but reasoning from first principles means that uh, you have a very fundamental approach to problems where um, other people may be reasoning by analogy, um, which is not a good way to reason. Because if you, if you just say like, oh, um, you know, like, Car engines have always ran on gasoline, so they'll probably always run on gasoline in the future. Mm -hmm. That's like a terrible way to reason. Um, but if you go from first principles, then it's very easy to um, to tell that that's not the case, for example. That's fair. So, so it's just kind of basing something in some sort of fundamental fact, some sort of key idea mm -hmm. uh, when trying to ascribe judgment to something. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So uh, I guess coming off of that, so what exactly do you do at Quantopian? You're a research engineer, right? So what exactly does that mean? So I work on a lot of random little projects, basically things that don't fit into our traditional engineering workflow. And that generally just involves building prototypes for things. And then I also um, work a lot on Pyfolio, which is our open source tool for evaluating algorithms. It's on GitHub, check it out. Uh, yeah, and I I have been working on Pyfolio for a couple of years now, ever since I was an intern at Quantopian. Did you do anything else as an intern, or is it just for Pyfolio? Yeah, so I actually interned for Quantopian for my entire college career, so for three <laughs> summers, which is kind of insane. But the, the original eternal intern. <coughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or that might actually be Scott. I'm not sure. I think it's Scott okay. or Sung. Well, Sung, Sung, Sung too. Okay. Scott and Sung. Uh, but yeah, I actually started at Quantopian when there were like seven employees. Oh wow. Um, so I've seen it grow. Now we're at you know fifty or sixty. I try to keep Somewhere track of the number on Slack, but I usually say fifty. Uh, and go from yeah, there. but I think we're closer to like 55 or 60 now oh, or maybe I don't know if that includes current interns, but heck yeah, we're getting up there <laughs> uh, So so uh, oh, yeah, so for the US what I worked on as an intern. I didn't work on uh, any big projects. I Usually just made example algorithm algorithms for people okay. on the forums and then I would like post them to the forums Yeah just try um, to get people involved. Yeah, exactly. Around the zip line and whatnot. Yeah, just make like little interesting projects to draw people to the platform. Gotcha. So, I, so since you're working on Pyfolio so much, right? So Pyfolio is this portfolio analytics tool uh, allows you to really diagnose what's wrong with an algorithm in the first place. So what? Yeah. What's what? I guess are some common threads that you notice in a good algo. Uh, I know it's kind of like a hard question to answer. What yeah. makes a good algorithm, right? But uh, I'm wondering if, you, if you've noticed any sorts of common themes. Yeah, right. So I think, so a lot of people on Quantopian um, don't realize that what the, the valuable algorithms are ones that make money on their own accord. They don't just put money in like long positions in the stock market and okay. hope those positions go up. So 
the value of an algorithm is basically given by two things. It's given by um, how like how much your how much money your signal makes and how unique your signal is. So if you have a you a, some type of signal that no one else in the world has, um, like I don't know, let's say you can somehow make money on I don't know what's a good example like trading on whether it like snows or something like that outside mm -hmm. one day and no one else is using that using some weather model <clears throat> yeah. to develop some signal to buy and sell yeah and you yeah and you're in that algorithm it doesn't matter if you know the stock this the stock market as a whole is doing well or doing bad or if you're in some type of momentum regime um, it just it just works on its own and it's not dependent on other factors in the market so would you like uh, say this is say that this signal is unique of anything else in the market? Would, would you say that you discovered some sort of novel property of the particular set of instructions that your algorithm is following? Like, is there like what what, what precisely makes one of these signals unique? Right? How right. how would we classify this? Yeah, no, it, it's a good question. So you use so generally, I think you use risk for that. Okay. Um, so. We're working on a risk model that we hope to that we hope to open source to the community soon. But in your risk model, you can basically check like, okay, what's your exposure to you know the the momentum factor, or what's your exposure to value, or what's your exposure to different sectors? And generally, the closer those are to zero, the better. Because if you let's say you have a strategy that makes like you know ten percent profits a year or something, mm -hmm. easier said than done. But let's say you have that, and fully <laughs> <Holy> grail. <laughs> yeah, right. And and it has you know zero exposure to everything. Then that's very valuable because mm -hmm. if some let's say someone wants to add momentum exposure to that strategy, then they can just literally take your signal and add to that like. Um, some momentum factor like M MACD or something like that so because it's like independent of everything right. it's easy to combine it with literally any other thing that you would want yep and if you okay. have a bunch of independent return streams so from the perspective of Quantopian's fund if you have a bunch of independent return streams then you can merge them you can sort of merge them together mm -hmm. and since they're not dependent on each other I either or they're, they're like independent. So that means if, let's say one signal like tanks one day and the other ones are steadily climbing, then that's not a huge deal because they're independent. So if one tanks, the other ones will be fine. So, so it's basically applying the principles of good model development in general, specifically to this uh, portfolio construction problem, right? Because you have all these totally independent signals. Each provides some new information independent of everything else, right? Because a signal, an alpha, yeah. all of this is just some information stream that you're using to make decisions. So by yeah. having everything independent, you can more reasonably combine things, more reasonably yeah. uh, build a collective model. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure you know more about the, the mathematics of that than I do. But. <laughs> Portfolio construction all the way down. Oh, yeah. Uh, Markowitz's dream, everything independent. <laughs> but, uh, all right, so, so we're talking a little bit about uh, these risk exposures, right? Um, so how precisely do you calculate a risk exposure? I know uh, there's a few different ways uh, in the literature 
Um, there's one way where you take the covariance and whatnot, and there's another way where you <coughs> do linear regressions and multiple linear regressions. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any sort of reason or rhyme? What's, what's the relation here, I guess? Um, yeah, so what we do is, so let's take the example of beta. Okay. Um, so the traditional market yeah market beta okay. to like the SPY okay so the traditional way to get beta or the more common way is to just like take your return stream and then um, calculate the beta of that to the using those your algorithms returns you just calculate the beta of those that return stream to the return stream of the SPY in this case. So like this is the coefficient and linear regression beta? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and so yeah, so you just take that and that that will give you like <clears throat> your beta to the to the SPY, but the problem with that is that let's say you so this is another good reason for using risk. Let's say you trade your entire portfolio out one day. Mm -hmm. Um then your new portfolio that you just legged into won't necessarily be following um, your measurement of beta because your measurement of beta like depends, you know, on like the trailing six months or something. So if you swap out your entire book, like your new portfolio is not like does not line up with that previous measurement. So the measurement is always right. delayed. So you need to be sort of actively calculating yep. this beta, actively calculating your risk exposures. Yep, so the way we do that is we basically just take the traditional beta of each stock. So like let's say your portfolio symbol, let's say it's like, you know, $100 long in Apple and like $100 short in Microsoft or something like that. Always long Apple. Always just long kidding. Apple. No no investment advice. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um so then in that case you would just take the, you know, like the rolling 6 month um, beta of Apple to SPY and the same for Microsoft, and then you would just like weight those betas based on your your position value in the market. Okay. So in this case, it would just be like one Apple and like negative one Microsoft. Yeah. So then in that case, uh, we, we, provided that Apple and Microsoft have the same beta exposure, right? You'd have a net exposure of zero. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Yep. So I, I guess. Uh, this risk stuff seems to be super hard to balance in an active ongoing way, especially if you're actively rebalancing and actively moving around the book, which I, which I guess is kind of what you want to be doing, right? If you have an interesting informative signal, uh, it, you want it to be doing lots of things because it seems like otherwise you're going to be betting on these sorts of long market movements where you're just putting yep. everything long in the market and trying to let that ride, right? Mm -hmm. So would you say that a good signal is generally actively constructed like this and how much more difficult does it make uh, this task of calculating risk exposures if that is so um, right so I so when we look for strategies um, just like using portfolio or whatever we mm -hmm. we want the strategy to not have an extremely high turnover okay. and not have an extremely low turnover. So, so it's kind of this usually, yeah, usually we I think like our favorite range is like 5 to 30% turnover. Okay. As in it like gets out of like 20% of its positions every day and then like 
legs into a new, new like new positions using that extra twenty capital from the twenty percent. Is this like a daily horizon or monthly, weekly? Yeah, so it? like yeah, so like daily turnover. But uh, you know, monthly strategies can also work. And if if the turnover is super high, then the it's harder to categorize the risk on that because let's say things are trading intraday, <clears throat> then we so right now we generally look at end of day risk values. Okay. Although we can look at intraday ones, but if let's say your portfolio switches time switches like three times during the day, so then you'll have different risk exposures during the day. Mm-hmm. Although our tools right now are only built for looking at end of day or like w- one value per day basically, um, and also, and we you know you might say like oh well why do your tools suck, and you know that's <laughs> kind of true <laughs> that's kind of true we are we probably should build our tools eventually to be able to do that, <laughs> but it doesn't matter too much anyways because at least to us right now, because if you're trading so much like that you're swapping over your book three times during the day, yeah. then your costs are going to be like so prohibitive that, that'll that show like up it doesn't even else. matter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah it, like a, a strategy that does that probably like has a much lower chance of working than one that just trades like once every week or something like that. <clears throat> so we have like this reasonable number of trades. We're hitting that sweet spot in turnover. Are there any other... Uh, like particularly good characteristics of an algorithm, or do we just care about whether the return stream is not exposed to anything else, whether it's novel? Is, is there yeah. anything else consistent? Um, so we so there's a few types of strategies we like. We've recently started to like categorize these more thoroughly. Okay. So we um, like sort of these cross-sectional strategies, which is kind of what we're talking about mm-hmm. with you know turnovers. In like the twenty percent ish daily turnover a range. A lot of stuff long, a lot of stuff short. Yeah, like exactly like half long, half short. So you might have like you know hundred positions long, hundred positions short, mm-hmm. um, some large amount of positions. We don't we don't want to see like if you have like your entire book like long Apple one day, and then like you know one short stock as well. We we like a like a. Um, a neatly balanced book. Yeah, a really. neatly balanced book where you don't have too much okay. risk in one position because that's another source of risk. If you just have your entire mm-hmm. capital base in like one stock, well, okay, if that stock tanks, then you're <laughs> kind of fucked. So. so there's like these sort of wider market risks that you'll run into where you're dealing with like style or yeah. sector or, mar- or uh, the market risk itself. And then there's also like the implementation risk that you run into when you're way overbalanced long or way overbalanced short. Yeah, is that what you're saying? Okay. yeah I think so. Um, and then another thing, yeah, so obviously you want like a good amount of stocks long and short. And then another thing, with also with regards to the turnover, that I think our tools like are not good at and we really need to get on this is that mm-hmm. we don't, like if you're trading a lot of stocks that are not in like, that are basically not top stocks. So let's say you're trading some like penny stock. Well, that you can't really trade large amounts of capital on that because your own trades will swing the price so much. So like if you buy like a million dollars of some penny stock in simulation, that's not going to work in real trading because you're just going to make the price of the stock go up a lot. And you can actually try this like in personal trading if you really want. You can buy like you can buy like a thousand dollars of some penny stock, and you, you can actually see the price go up 
like you can see your impact on the market sometimes. So this is kind of like kind of this fun. constant curse, right? Where yeah. we're doing any sort of like quantitative finance, quantitative investing, that well, a lot of time finding a good signal, finding an interesting algorithm is based around finding some sort of inefficiency, right? But yeah. in order to actually get at that inefficiency, it's not really a viable thing to do just because, well, all these super illiquid, these penny stocks, these are highly inefficient. There's weird stuff going on in the market yeah. in general, but the, you can't actually get at it. Yeah, there's like super weird stuff going on at the tails. So what we like to see is stocks that are, uh, you know, have a high market cap, are traded a lot, are liquid. And you can basically just get at that with the Q1500 right now. Mm -hmm. So we like to see algos that uh, just just trade stocks in the Q1500. Because even if you trade one stock that's outside of the Q1500, um, and you're trading like, and you're stimulating on like a million dollars of capital, well, if you trade $100,000 of that penny stock, you can lose a lot of money just from that one trade. For uh, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar, the Q1500 and the Q500 and these Q uh, integer number uh, things are basically these uh, algorithmically defined universes that we put together to try to simulate uh, the S&P 500, just try to nail down what defines a good universe. Because whenever you're dealing with an algorithm in general, right, you you need some set of things to trade. So you generally need to whitelist a bunch of stuff to make sure you're actually trading what you would want to, not trading these penny stocks or uh, any of this other nonsense. So, uh, so related to penny stocks, related to risk, related to all this fun stuff. Uh, I guess what kind of stuff keeps you up at night, guys? When, when you're uh, when you're thinking about risk, when you're thinking about penny <laughs> stocks, what really gives you the the shivers? Um. Yeah, it's a good question. I just talked about some of that stuff. So those are like the main things, um, and I'll, I guess I'll just go back to um, to the simulation of market impact again, which mm -hmm. is like your effect of the trade on the market okay. and you know slippage. Um, I think it's really important to have a good a good grasp on that, and the so ideally we want to implement some type of. Uh, slippage model like more advanced slippage model on mm -hmm. our platform but these slippage models they're even the best ones from what I've seen are mm -hmm. like really inaccurate so like they might have like an R squared of like like 0.2 at best or something yeah. like that it's like insanely it's like insanely low but since you're making so many trades it usually doesn't matter mm -hmm. um, on average you have these, like, right. yeah you have these like this, you have this like massive distribution, but like you're sampling so much from it that the mean is generally like close to the actual. So this seems to be kind of like tied into again another classic problem: quantitative finance, right? You have this issue of wanting to uh, exploit some sort of inefficiency, but you can't get the inefficiency. This seems to be again. Uh, that it's really hard to predict prices. That it's yeah. really hard to predict how the market's going to react to yeah. something. Yeah, that's true. I guess it's just a bigger problem in quant finance. Because things are like so noisy, it's like so stupid. It's just endemic. Financial <laughs> yeah. data is just the worst possible. Yeah, thing like you could have like a really good algorithm, but it just like does terrible for like a year. But it it just, like you got like, you. I guess you can call it unlucky, but um, there's just so much noise. It's really hard to evaluate things. 
So I gather that you're super worried about risk in general. So when I'm actively developing a strategy, like obviously all that we're talking about is kind of like prescriptive, right? I have some return stream, I can break down its exposures, and I can kind of figure out where I am in space relative to these things that I'm concerned about, momentum, style, sector, market. Uh, so how can I take this sort of stuff into account? Because as I understand, a risk model is like what you shouldn't be doing. It's like, hey, you already did this thing, do a different thing. Like, let's tack on this hedge. How can I actively sort of gun for this risk and get it out of my life? Right, yeah, so there's a lot of different types of risk, as we've talked about, so like, mm -hmm. so like a simple one is just the, um, the market risk, like yeah. basically you wanna have a beta of zero. Yeah, so, so let's say, how can I get a beta of zero without tacking on a hedge? Right, yeah, uh, you probably, you might have a better answer than I do for this, but like, if, if, you're, if you have to hedge, then you're probably doing something wrong in the first place. Okay. So like, if it let, let's say a, lo a lot of people I see on Quantopian will just make some strategy that's all wrong. Okay. Which is good, you know, it might be good for personal training, but if you're gunning for an allocation, then, you know, that's not what you want to be doing. Uh, if you just have like, you know, some varying port long portfolio and then some spy hedge, you should have a varying long and short portfolio because a good signal will have profits on the long side and um, hopefully some on the short side too. So if you're just, you know, if you're just investing like $50,000 in your signal on the long side and then shorting SPY $50,000 on the short side, <clears throat> then you're losing like half of your like weight to your signal if you then if you were to just put $50,000 in your signal on the short side too. Because then you'd have like 100K in your signal. You know what I mean? Does yeah, that make sense? sense? Okay. So I guess like a market beta is sort of easier to handle, right? Just because like, okay, we can go long on a bunch of stuff, we can go short on a bunch of stuff. Ideally, that's going to get rid of beta. Mm -hmm. But what about some of these weirder sorts of things? I guess like sectors, like a sub problem of like market. But so I yeah. want to be like immunized to like sort of momentum stuff. What's a good way to go about that? Yeah, it's it, it's a good question. I don't have a great answer. You can so <clears throat> we don't. It's it's hard for users to be able to do this right now, but hopefully soon we'll have our uh, our risk model out, um, and people will be able to look at their algorithms' exposures to risk in Pyfolia. So once that's there, you can say like, okay, this algorithm has, you know, some some negative momentum exposure or negative exposure to the MACD. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, there a way to like actively manage that? Right. Uh, instead of just waiting to pop my return stream into portfolio. Right. Right. I I'm not sure. Do you have a good answer to that? I mean, I know uh, at least with um, like our optimizer. Uh, yeah. And with the Optimize API, you can add in sort of risk exposures as constraints to deal with when allocating to your universe of securities. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess what I'm asking is, like, is, is that the way to do it? Is there some better way? Or are we just yeah. still trying to figure it out? <clears throat> yeah, I guess, like, if you, so if your signal has mean reversion in it, then mm -hmm. you're going to have some mean reversion exposure. And I would no. say if you have mean reversion exposure in your signal, then 
you know, that's just like a trait of, of okay. the signal. I don't know. So it's just a matter of what you're really yeah. interested in. Like to yeah. some per to some person, like a meter version exposure would be okay. Yeah, but to someone else, exactly. it might not be. Yeah, and for a lot of people, it is okay because mm -hmm. the meter version signal has like positive expected value. Like you know, if you if you just go long in the market, they both have positive expected value, but they're both basically zero value because anyone can just do that. It's all just a matter of perspective, <laughs> whether you consider it a risk or not. Yeah. Well, that's always fun. I love ambiguity. In <laughs> Definitely yeah. my favorite thing. Yeah. But, uh, I just wanted to go up into the right man. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's a lot of stuff about algorithm. That's a lot of stuff about risk. So I guess, what do you find interesting besides talking about all this stuff? What do you find interesting besides quantitative findings? Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people at Quantopian have some like side projects and stuff. I've I sort of like, you know, work on something it's like some side project and then i'll like not work on one for a few years it's so easy back. to get distracted i know and it's really hard because working here there's just like so much like interesting stuff to do as well mm -hmm. that you can almost just have like people have like side projects like within quantopian that they mm -hmm. enjoy doing so um but yeah for like I, i'm in so i like physics a lot and from that i kind of got interested in interested in like aerospace and I'm interested in like the electric electrification of vehicles. So I'm I'm pretty interested in like the electrification of aircraft. Okay. Um, Tell me about the electrification of aircraft. Yeah. So like all these cars are going electric, um, and I think the the electric powertrain is just like fundamentally better than than like gas vehicles. Is there any particular reason for that, or? Uh, well, so we one is yeah yeah we're just millennials. It's better um so one is that it, there's like zero emissions or okay on the conversion to like mechanical energy side so if you just have like uh <clears throat> energy then in, in the vehicle then there's obviously the, the vehicle is emitting no it's creating no emissions and then the other reason is that electricity is a lot cheaper than gas so like you know electricity might be like i don't know the numbers are but it's like maybe like five cents per kilowatt mm -hmm. per kilowatt hour and then gasoline might be like 20 cents per kilowatt hour okay. so it's like so a, it's a like reasonable yeah so it's like yeah it's like in. digital cameras so like everyone so like before people had these film cameras and every time you want to take more pictures you have to go buy like <laughs> film yeah, which sucks. But then yeah, and then digital cameras came out, and you can just like take as many photos as you want, and it's like free. Um, so the marginal cost is like half or something like that. Mm -hmm. Not and, even including the time cost. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and also electric vehicles just have less moving parts. So like a typical gas car has like two thousand moving parts, whereas an electric car only has like ten or something, or on that order. Yeah, fewer fewer moving yeah. parts. Makes it a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, and it, there's basically just much lower probability of things breaking down. So, and also, air I think air transportation, like, sucks. Because people hate going to the airport. It's, like, such a pain. If you have, if you have an hour flight somewhere, the total transportation time is, like, it's, like, super long. It's, like, four hours or something. Okay. Like, because you have to get to the airport early, and then you have to drive there, you have to drive back. Um, and airports have to be in these like really far, these areas that are really far from the city because 
you can't have you airplanes flying over cities. Yeah, they have to yeah. be large. Um, Big runway, all that good stuff. Yeah, huge runway. It's like insane. And they're, the land is very expensive. And it's obviously like amazing that it works, but <laughs> I think it would be better if you could like um, have planes take off from really close to the city. And if you could have planes be a lot faster. And I think one way to do that might be with um, electric airplanes at some point. So I did like a bunch of, I spent like a while on this and I did like a bunch of, I made like a Jupiter notebook actually. Mm -hmm. um, Doing fun stuff? Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and I, I use like stuff that we use here. I use like SciPy and uh, you know, pandas and stuff Classic like NumPy stuff yeah. and all that fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I basically came to the conclusion that like some, like vertical takeoff and landing, uh, supersonic aircraft will be possible when batteries get to about like 600, um, 50 watt hours per kilogram, which is uh, the specific like all energy. black magic to me. <laughs> if I'm being honest, it's just like but the amount of energy you st you can store in a battery. So yeah. like right now you can store, um, you can store like 300 watt hours per kilogram, um, and a, a watt hour is like like one watt hour is like one watt per hour. So. One watt hour is uh, three thousand six hundred joules, because sixty times sixty. That's fair. So a joule is just a unit of energy. Um, so it's joules per per mass. What about you? What are your interesting projects? Uh, b besides thinking about black magic and uh, <laughs> and how it powers everything we do and how everything just barely works. Uh, yeah, just barely. Yeah, that's a, a miracle of the modern age. I don't know. I I do a lot of stuff about a. Uh, Weird nonsense involving music is always fun. It's like, hey, it's just mm. another signal, right? You can break a signal down and recompose it in the same way that you can break down any other signal, trading algorithm, whatever. Some set of samples, some set of interesting pieces of data across time. Just kind of breaking that down, recombining, see if I can do any dumb stuff about it. <laughs> uh, found some new clustering algorithms that I'm probably going to be trying out later today. So Ooh. that'll be a blast. But I guh Which uh, clustering algorithms? Uh, definitely dbscan. Uh, you know, like hdbscan? I do not know oh, hdbscan. It's literally, it's, so, it's, it's like so sexy. It's just, just like Python library. Um, and it works like the, the, what is it? SciPy clustering? Yeah, cause I know, cause scikit-learn has, um, or yeah, scikit-learn, right. Has dbscan built in, super easy. But then there's like this thing called like hdbscan, which is like a more, it's just like a more powerful version of that. Okay. And you can just pass it. I think it can take in like pandas, uh, data frames, and like Definitely numpy arrays. array and anything. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so yeah, I'll, it, I'll show you that. What's the advantage over like dbscan? Is there like an easy way to visualize it? I don't remember exactly. Um, okay. there's we'll we'll this, do some off Yeah, there was this, yeah, there's this really cool article on Hacker News like a couple years ago. It was like comparison. I think it's called comparison of clustering algorithms. Okay. If you just Google it. And it has like dbscan, it has hdbscan, it has like k-means, yeah. like all the all the classics. Yeah. yeah. So you can look into that. Yeah, but I've been trying a bunch of different ones because like the side product is basically it's like, hey, I have uh, some very large library of songs, right? I have all these features that I've calculated on these signals over time and I want to kind of look at how they're related to each other, look at uh, similarities in kind of the structure of this music 
uh, which I'm sure so many people have purported to do before. I just want to make pretty pictures. Yeah, uh, is what it comes down to. Uh, but it, I guess it all comes down to pretty pictures to help people understand it. Yeah. But I guess uh, one last important question, Gus, before we go. Hey guys, so a quick disclaimer. Uh, what follows is uh, some small amount of time uh, talking about some nonsense that doesn't really have to do with quantitative finance. So if you're only interested in quantitative finance, uh, this might not be for you. Some of you might be. Who knows? Sandwiches are interesting, depending on the person. Depends on your perspective. So okay. I know that Delaney and Scott had an opportunity to talk about this before. But I'm just curious uh, on, on your opinions regarding sandwiches. Yeah. So how do you feel? Well, how would you feel if I told you that I think a hot dog is a sandwich? Um... I would think you're an idiot. <laughs> and is, is there any particular reason? Because I, I feel like I can make a pretty good argument for this, one way or the other. I, okay, okay, What you can tell me your argument. All right, consider, right? You got a hoagie, you got a sub, you got all this classic stuff. Okay. It's just essentially a roll yeah. that's connected or, or disconnected. It's kind of, you okay. call it a hoagie, you call it a sandwich, regardless of whether it's connected or not. Yeah. And a hot dog is exactly equivalent to a hoagie. It's, okay. it's exactly equivalent to a sub. You just have a different meat and a slightly different texture of the bread. Yeah. But you could put, I don't know, ham, cheese, a little bit of mayo, a little bit of lettuce, tomato on a hot dog bun. Yeah. You'd probably willingly call that a sandwich, right? Uh, uh, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Is it the hot dog bun that's the issue here? I or, think uh... it's just the fact that it's getting closer to a hot dog that's than a fair. sandwich. <laughs> okay. So, so let's say that I start with a hoagie, right? Okay. Let's say I, I turn... That bun, just a little more brown, a little more smooth on the outside, so it looks kind of like a hot dog bun, but it doesn't okay. quite get. Let's say I swap out uh, the meat in there for, uh, for I don't know, Wait, sorry, a so sausage. This is, a, this is a hoagie? Yeah, we have a normal okay. hoagie, right? Okay. Let's say I put a sausage in there instead of ham, and I got a sausage, some lettuce, some cheese, some mayonnaise. Okay. Is that a sandwich? I don't know. So let, let's say someone, let's say you just showed this to some guy on the street. Yeah. Would he call it a sandwich? If you, yeah, if he call, if you went up to him and said, do you want a hot dog and showed him it, would he be like, you're an idiot? I mean, it's got lettuce and tomato it look like on a sandwich it. or is it a hot dog? So we're just going <laughs> to rely on what some arbitrary guy on the street's going to come up with okay, to determine okay. whether something's a sandwich or not? A, like average person in the U.S. <laughs> All right. So. Because I feel like, like, if it, if it looks like a hot dog, then it's a hot dog. And. If it looks like a sandwich, then it's a sandwich. Like if it's that seems like, a little arbitrary to me. I, I don't know. Open your mind, guess. I don't know. Like if <laughs> if uh if, if some restaurant had like hot dog on the menu and it was under the sandwich category, then mm-hmm. I would just be like, okay. Like maybe if they have one hot dog, then it makes sense. But let's say it's some like hot dog restaurant. And they have some some sandwiches and some hot dogs. Then they should like make sandwiches and hot dogs like separate categories. You know? Because I feel like what you call something is just. Like, what you categorize things as is just, like, a convenience thing. So you could call, like, anything a sandwich, but it just, like, I, inconvenient. I do call a, anything a sandwich. So, like, you could call, like, an omelet a sandwich, or, like... An omelet's definitely a salad in any case. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't trust you anymore. It all depends on your perspective, you know? <laughs> and yeah, perspective sure. is always about covering. Uh, yeah. All right, guys, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, yeah, thanks I'm, for having I'm me. sorry about all that nonsense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just felt left out. Yeah, you, know? you people are crazy. <laughs> 
A big thanks to Gus Gordon for being our guest today, and a huge thanks to Andrew Petrozino for being our podcast director and, in general, producing these things. I'm Max Marginot, your host, and thank you guys for listening to Quant Talk. Quantopian provides this presentation to help people write trading algorithms. It is not intended to provide any sort of investment advice. More specifically, the material is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell, a solicitation to buy, or a recommendation or endorsement for any security or strategy, nor does it constitute an offer to provide investment advisory or other services by Quantopian. In addition, the content neither constitutes investment advice nor offers any opinion with respect to the suitability of any security or any specific investment. Quantopian makes no guarantees as to accuracy or completeness of the views expressed in the website. The views are subject to change and may have become unreliable for various reasons, including changes in market conditions or economic circumstances.